Thank you, Steve and worship team. I hope you all are feeling a bit more rested today. The extra hour of sleep goes a long way, doesn't it? Except if you're a parent of young children, of course. Well, this morning we're finishing our study, our five-week study on Paul's prayer in Philippians 1. We've already concluded our our mini-series on prayer as thanksgiving, and we'll be, we will be concluding prayer as supplication, our last sermon for, in that mini-series today. Before I begin, I'd like to frame this sermon with a confession. I have a confession. I make the confession that I am not a planner. I, I do not enjoy planning. I tend to take things day by day, week by week, and I, in my defense, I tend to accomplish the things I need to when I have to. I don't finish things at the last moment. I finish them right on time, of course. Now, there are some things in life that you have to plan for. And by not planning, I have found myself forgetting some things. So planning, to a certain degree, is essential. Procrastination isn't always something, a position that you can always take on issues. There are some issues that are so important that you have to address them right now. Not tomorrow, not in a week, but right now. And the Bible speaks to us of these types of things that we have to plan for. The Bible speaks of the future. The Bible speaks of the past and of the future. And in the future, the Bible talks about certain events, certain realities. And these realities concern eternity. The Bible speaks of heaven and hell, judgment, salvation, ultimate redemption and ultimate damnation. And these things, these are the types of things that we have to plan for right now. We can't continue to put them off. There is an immediacy to the things of the Bible. And we have to plan for them right now. Specifically with reference to Christ's return. The Bible promises that just as Christ came one time, he will come again. And he will come to judge the world. He will come to save Christians and judge non-Christians. So in that light, and that's kind of how I want to frame it this morning, we'll pick this up in our application at the end. That's the general spirit that I want to approach this text with this morning. The text is Philippians 1, 10 through 11. Go ahead and turn with me there. Philippians 1, 10 through 11. And Paul is bringing his prayer to a conclusion. He started this prayer in verse 3, 1, 3, and he's concluding it in 1, 11. And the main gist of his prayer in 9 through 11, look in verse 9, we covered this, we began this prayer last week, this is the second part of his prayer, he's supplicating, he's asking God certain things for the Philippians on their behalf. And last week I discussed, verse 9, that what Paul wants, what Paul's praying for, is this notion of love. This love to abound more and more. And this is a certain type of love, I argued last week. It's a discerning love. It's a love with knowledge and all discernment. And the purpose of Paul's prayer, verse 10a, first part of 10, is so that the Philippians would learn to approve that which matters, that which is excellent, 
that this discerning love would manifest itself in the Philippians being able to identify that which they ought to spend their lives on. And I argue that that is ultimately Christ and his mission. We need to spend our time and our lives on the excellent things, the things that matter, not the things that don't matter. So much in this life doesn't matter. And what Paul wants for the Philippians is he wants their love to mature so that they can discern that which matters. And in this week's sermon, we're going to continue exploring this notion of love and how it manifests itself, how Paul wants it to manifest itself in the Philippians. Paul wants this love to mature and to take root. And what does that look like? What is the manifestation of love? What does Paul want? How does Paul want that love to manifest itself? And there's two ways that Paul wants this love to manifest itself. The first way, and this is the first point, if you're taking notes, write the current manifestation of love. Paul wants the lo this love, this discerning love, this knowledgeable love, to manifest itself in the Philippians from the perspective, from the time point of when he's writing to them. Look in verse 10 at the second part. In the second part of verse 10, Paul says, So be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now that, that assertion in verse 10 is with reference, is speaking of the future. Paul wants that for the Philippians in the future, not, not now, not from the point of his writing. He wants them to be prepared for when Christ returns. But Christ hasn't returned yet. And so that aspect, that part of verse 10 is dealing with the future. The way Paul wants this love to manifest itself in the Philippians right now is mentioned in verse 11. And that's where I'm going to start with. I'm going to start with verse 11. Although verse 10 comes before verse 11, temporally, verse 11 happens before verse 10. Paul wants to see this love manifest itself right now and then ultimately when Christ returns. So in verse 11, the way that Paul wants this love to manifest itself is he wants the Philippians to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. First, with this notion of filling. What does this mean? This is a participle, and this is a passive participle. Passive verbs, what that means is that the action of the verb is being done to the Philippians. They themselves are not filling themselves up. They're not seeking to build themselves up with this fruit of righteousness. That's being done to them. Now, who is it being done by? Who is it that's filling them up? Well, it's God. God is the one who Paul is requesting to fill the Philippians up. And what this indicates is a theme that I've hit on, and I will continue to hit on as long as I'm your pastor, is that salvation is by grace. Salvation is by grace. We don't fill ourselves up with good works. God fills us with those good works. Anything good you do in this life is because of God. Anything, you, anything bad you do is because of yourself. That is an axiom that goes across all of Scripture. All the goodness that we have is from God. All the fruit that we give forth is from God. But more specifically, we can specify this a bit more. It's not just God who's filling the Philippians up. 
It's the Holy Spirit. As you'll know, as you know, as good Bible readers, by the way, our Bible is our middle name, Community Bible Church, being familiar with your Bibles, you know that the Spirit fills people. It fills people up. The Spirit fills people up with good deeds. That's a common verb that we get with the Spirit. The Spirit fills persons. And in Galatians 5, Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit. This notion that the Spirit produces fruit. So whenever you combine, the, combine these two ideas, filling with fruit, what you get is Philippians 1.11, filled with the fruit of righteousness. This is the Holy Spirit doing this. God generally, but the Holy Spirit specifically. The Holy Spirit is applying, Paul is requesting that the Holy Spirit apply the work of redemption to the lives of the Philippians so that they are filled with fruit. Salvation, sanctification, the process in which we go about walking and living for Christ is by grace alone. Nothing that good that we do is to our credit. This verb is passive, and that's what we get from that idea. And the Holy Spirit fills us with fruit. Fruit, this notion of fruit is a metaphor. It's referring to something else. The Spirit doesn't literally fill us with fruit. I don't think that, that would be possible. But what it's speaking of is a spiritual reality. This notion of fruit is a reference to our sanctification, our growth in Christ. When the gospel gets a grip of your life, you change. And you take on new behaviors and new thoughts. And those new behaviors and thoughts, the Bible calls those things fruit. That's spiritual growth. Just as a plant gives forth fruit as it grows, so also our lives give forth fruit. So this is, a, this is a metaphor, and it's an agricultural metaphor. Farmers, what you want to see is high yield in your crops. You want to see the quality of fruit being worthwhile. And the Bible and God examines our life through the same lens. The Bible pictures our life as a plant, as a crop, as a tree. Over and over again, it talks about our lives as plants. And what a healthy plant does is it gives forth fruit. It brings value to the world. And a, a healthy spiritual life, a life that honors Christ, a life that has been changed by the gospel, a life that is set on grace alone, will evidence forth this fruit. Change, value, worth. This is what Paul wants them to approve of. These are the excellent things. What matters in your life is whether your life is giving forth fruit. Are you walking in holiness? Are you doing good deeds towards others? Are you walking in good works? These things are fruit. But it's a specific type of fruit. It's a fruit of righteousness. See that qualifier there? And I take this to mean... What I believe that Paul is saying is that this fruit is itself righteous behavior. What is fruit, Pastor? Well, Paul, what is fruit? What are you talking about? It's righteous behavior. When the gospel gets a grip of your life, you live in a righteous way. You stop lying. You, beco you become a person of integrity and uprightness. Your life manifests itself this way. And the Holy Spirit fills you with this fruit. And this is the consequence of this love, this love that abounds more and more. And this is what God wants for us. God wants this love 
that Paul prays to manifest itself in our lives. The proof's in the pudding. God wants to see fruit in your life. He wants you to live in a righteous way. And this fruit, once again, is by grace alone. Grace, grace, grace. Look at this last phrase. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through ourselves. No. Through our own efforts, through our own doing. No. Through Jesus Christ. Sanctification, salvation is by grace alone. This does not come through our own doing. It comes through Jesus Christ. Turn with me to John 15, verse 1. John 15, 1, page 901. What we have here is Jesus himself complimenting what Paul says in Philippians 1. Paul gets his teaching from Jesus, so we would think that there would be symmetry between what Jesus says and what Paul says. And that's what we have in John 15, 1 through 5. This is Jesus talking. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the Father, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul wants the Philippians to have a mature love. And the current manifestation that Paul is praying that that love take is for the Philippians to be filled with fruit, righteous behavior. And that fruit only comes through Jesus Christ. It's only by grace that we bear forth fruit. In verse 5, whoever abides in me, he is it, he it is that bears much fruit. And listen to this. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The opposite of grace is is merit, you working your own salvation and earning it, you striving in a way that you earn your own sanctification. What Paul is saying and what Jesus is saying is that your fruit, the Philippians' fruit, is only because of Jesus Christ. We gather to proclaim him and to focus on him. And to renounce our own merit. We have none. And this is how Paul wants this love to manifest itself in the Philippians. Fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. Turn back with me to Philippians. Second point. 
first point is the current manifestation of love. Now Paul, in the second part of verse 10, turns his gaze future. There is a future event coming for us as Christians that is absolutely essential for our salvation. We do not believe in a cyclical understanding of history. We do not believe that things will just continue to go on over and over for eternity. We have a specific view of history. And that view of history has a beginning and it has an end. And Paul's specifying that end. What is that end? Well, the end, verse 10b, is this day of Christ. Paul wants the Philippians to be pure and blameless on this day. Paul's gazing in the future and he looks to this day. Well, what is this day? If you're taking notes, write the future manifestation of, of love. This is how Paul wants this love to manifest itself in the future. This day, I'd encourage you all to read the From Pulpit and Paper this week. I, I go in length to explain what that means in Philippians 1.6. Read that. And in 1.10, Paul kind of strikes a different chord. The day of Christ is when Jesus returns. The nomenclature, the, the, the phraseology that we use here is the rapture. When Jesus returns, this, this is speaking of this day of Christ's return. Now, this day will be a day of salvation, 1-6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God's work of redemption in the lives of the Philippians and in our lives and in all Christians' lives will come to a completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God the Father will complete his work of redemption in us. It will be a day of salvation. Now, it will also be a day of accountability. It will be a day of accountability for Christians. There will be a judgment for Christians. It is not a judgment of salvation, but a judgment of works. In seminary, I had many wonderful professors, great men who taught me many wonderful things. And one of my Greek professors whenever we would, it would be time to take a test, he would say, it's accountability time. And what he meant was that the test was going to keep us accountable for whether we learn the material. In school, it's not enough to just go to class. You actually have to learn the material. You can't just go through the motions. And tests are used to verify whether we know the material or not, whether we're keeping up, whether we're not just going through the motions, but actually learning the material. And that's what this day of Christ will be for the Christian. It will be a day of accountability. It will be a day of reckoning. That Christ will look through our lives, and he will weigh and examine our fruit. Now, on this day, all Christians will receive a passing grade. That's what separates the Christian from the non-Christian. All Christians will receive a passing grade. However, it does not mean that all Christians will get an A+. There will, be a there will be a variation of grades. But all Christians will pass. So in light of this day of accountability, Paul knows this. Paul knows that there's a coming of reckoning. There's a time of reckoning. Time will end and you will be held accountable for your life. And in that spirit, Paul wants the Philippians to be pure and blameless 
see that in the second part of verse 10. So, that, so be pure and blameless. This notion of purity is contrasted with impurity. What sin does is it makes us dirty. The Bible speaks of sin with many different metaphors. And one of the metaphors is that sin makes us dirty. It makes us guilty and it makes us dirty. It makes us feel defiled and soiled. Dirty. We need to be washed and cleansed. And that's what the gospel does. Now, all Christians ultimately will be pure before Christ because he has forgiven their sins. But what I take this to be referring to is this notion of conscience. You can be pure before Christ, yet die with an impure conscience. You can be a Christian and yet die in a state of sin. And what Paul wants is he wants the Philippians and he wants us to be prepared for that day. He wants love to manifest itself in a way that our conscience is pure. That our conscience is not defiled with sin. That our conscience is light. And that we could say before God and man that we are pure. That our motives are pure, our actions are pure, and our thoughts are pure. Ethical purity. And also, Paul wants them to be blameless. Now, blamelessness is contrasted with purity. Purity deals with sin as dirtiness, as filth. To be blameworthy is to be sinful and guilty. Sin as guilt. So one, purity, deals with sin as moral filth. And the other one deals with sin as guilt. When we sin, we bring upon ourselves both moral filth and guilt. And what Paul wants is he does not want the conscience of the Philippians to be guilty. It is possible to die forgiven by Christ and yet still die with a guilty conscience. Just because we're Christians does not mean that we're perfect. We do bad things. And Paul is talking to us. He's talking to those Christians who are doing bad things, who are bringing blame upon themselves in the community or in their own personal lives. And Paul wants them to be blameless. He wants whenever the Philippians die to stand before Christ to be able to say that, Christ, I have not caused my brothers and sisters to stumble. I am blameless. That's what Paul wants. He wants a clear testimony. And this is all for this day of accountability. So that's the future. The current manifestation in love, verse 11, is he wants the Philippians to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that is by grace alone. He wants them to be sanctified. And then he wants that, that sanctification to produce in them both purity and blameless, second part of verse 10. With an eye to the return of Jesus Christ, that day of reckoning in which we will have to take a test and Jesus will examine us to see if our lives were fruitful, to see what validity our, fruits ha our fruit has. And we must prepare for that day. Now lastly, last point. Paul ends the, his prayer and our passage, verse 11, with a short but powerful prepositional phrase. Look at the verse, end of verse 11. To the glory and praise of God. 
Pastor, what's the purpose of prayer? Why is Paul praying? Why is Paul pouring out his life for Christ and others? Why ought I to pray? What is the purpose of my life? It's right here. The purpose of prayer, the purpose of your life, is to be used to the glory and praise of God. This is the ultimate, this is my third point, the ultimate goal of love. What's it all about? It's about the glory and praise of God. That's all of what Paul's life was built upon. A singular focus to bring glory to God because of what Christ has done for him by the power of the Spirit. That was his single focus in life. And he prays in that spirit. Prayer, it's essential that we understand prayer towards that end. Look what Jesus says. Go to Matthew 6. Matthew 6. Here we have, once again, beautiful symmetry between what Paul is doing in this prayer and what Christ teaches us we ought to do. It's all about the glory and praise of God the Father. Matthew 6, verse 7. And when you pray, this is Jesus talking, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This notion of, of Jesus hallowing the Father's name is essentially what Paul says. To hollow someone's name is to lift it up high, to exalt it, to magnify it. What Jesus is saying is that to God and God alone, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, be the one to whom all glory goes. The way Jesus begins his prayer is the exact way that Paul ends his prayer. What's life about? What's prayer about? It's about the glory of the Father being magnified. In your prayers, make that end the purpose of why you pray. That's the ultimate end of all things. Generally, in prayer, specifically. That's the final statement that Paul gives for us in this prayer. Now, bringing this passage, bringing this sermon to a conclusion... I'd like to press upon you two points of application. The first is this. There is an immediacy to spiritual issues. There is an immediacy to the attention of which I'm talking about this morning that we all must take heed to. There are some things, bringing back to the introduction, there are some things in life that are so important it is foolish and sinful to push off in the future. For the non-Christian, oftentimes the thinking goes something like, I'll get right with God later in life. This is common. Non-Christians commonly think this. I'll get right with God later on. They know that they're not living right, but they think that they can push it off. And this is foolishness. 
We could die at any time. I was talking with someone who lost a child, and they said to me, death can come at any time. And it's true. It's true. No one knows what tomorrow holds. No one who dies suddenly believes that they were going to die. And we need to be prepared for eternity, to see Christ. And for the non-Christian, the point of application is that today is the day of salvation. Billy Graham, the great evangelist, constantly emphasized this. Today, you need to get your life right with God. Not tomorrow, not next week, not the next day. There is an immediacy to this because it's so important. You could lose your life if you keep procrastinating this issue. And then secondly, for the, for the Christian, there also is an immediacy for you. Christian, there might be issues in your life that you are not resolving right now. Whether that's an issue between you and your spouse, whether that's an issue with someone else. Maybe you ought to forgive somebody. You ought to apologize for something that you've done to them. But you continue to tell yourself, I'll put that off till tomorrow. If you do that, you do not have a pure and blameless conscience. We need to deal with sin right now. Issues right now. There's an immediacy to this. Non-Christian, today is the day of salvation. And Christian, do not put off sanctification, do not put off good works, do not put off holiness, do not put off apologizing to people who you ought to apologize to. Make amends now before it's too late. And then lastly, in college, sometimes professors would pass out pretests. Pretests were kind of freebies. You take them to see how you're doing at that moment. And they were to prepare for the final test. And in the Christian life, there are pretests that we can take to see how we will do on the ultimate test. When Christ returns, he will test us. That will be the ultimate test. And there are things that we can do right now, pretests that we can take right now to prepare for that day. And this is that pretest. The pretest is your conscience. Your conscience. The conscience is a very powerful tool. And I want to I I touch your conscience right now. You need to ask yourself, conscience, self, chance, am I dirty and guilty? Or am I pure and blameless? That's the question we have to ask. In your life, right now, does your conscience testify to you that you are pure and blameless? Or are there issues and actions in your life that nag you and bother you? If they nag and bother you, you're not pure and blameless. And Paul's hope, my hope, God's hope, is that you take that pretest right now. Stop putting it off. You have to take it right now. And you have to dig into your conscience. And that little small voice that you, t- that you want to push away and push down, you have to ask God for the strength to confront it. You have to take the pretest to be ready 
for the main test. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its pointedness, clarity, power. And Father, I do pray that you would produce in us a love, a discerning love, a love that abounds more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we might approve that which is excellent and also so that we might be pure and and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ when he comes to hold us accountable for our lives. Father, I pray that we would make strides to have a clean conscience, a pure and blameless conscience right now. Father, we pray for that this love would fill us, that by the Spirit we would be filled with fruit of righteousness. And we would know that this comes by grace alone. And that, Father, ultimately our confession as individuals and as Christians would be that in all things, God the Father would be glorified. Father, we ask for this power and these truths to be made evident in our lives and in this church. Bless your word and bless your work here. In Christ's name, amen.